Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and my guest today is David A. Bateman, Assistant Professor of Government at Cornell University. David's new book, Disenfranchising Democracy, Constructing the Electorate in the United States, the United Kingdom, and France, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So your book begins with a puzzle. In 19th century America, why was mass democratization accompanied by the mass disenfranchisement of Black citizens? And you argue that the construction of an extensive and vibrant democracy was was simultaneously being subscribed along racial lines. And so we need to understand the debate over Black citizenship as sort of as vital to the building of what we consider to be the people. Um, And this book uses comparative case studies to draw wider conclusions about the power of narrative and of institutions. It's really unusual to understand democratization through its negation. So, So somehow looking at a deviant case. And I'm wondering if you can start us off by explaining how you came to this project and how you came to this question of understanding democratization through uh, uh, the restraint, the, the, uh, the restraining of, of, of who gets to count as the people. Yeah, so I, I think that's a great question. I, I, when I try to piece together the motivations for this book, there were so many different streams, including courses that I had taken in graduate school and different works that I'd been reading. One of the things, though, that perhaps sort of stands out as uh, more and more for me as a motivating factor was there was a quote by an economist that I'd heard a few times, and I forget exactly who it was, but the quote went more more or less along the lines that in today's society, the big questions of democratization, the sort of Barrington Moore questions of democratization, such as how do you get a democracy, had been more or less answered, and we had a decent sense of the answers to those. What we didn't have a good sense were sort of the ancillary questions or what comes next of how do you manage and regulate a diverse society? And this actually struck me as very sort of wrong. Uh, And it struck me as wrong because I was very familiar with American history and the American history of uh, democratization. And it seemed to me that at least in the United States, the question of sort of what it was to manage a diverse society or the question of uh, axes of differentiation within a society that did not follow strictly along sort of the, the classic economic class grounds that was often projected to be the story of democratization, that that was integral to America's democratic experience. And so I had this presumption or, or this assumption that maybe there was something there, that if we looked at the histories of democratization, the 19th century histories of democratization, not from the angle of how do you get a democracy, but how were these democracies being structured in such a way that they could contain or limit or define uh, some type of community, being be it a national community, a racial community, or a religious community, in ways that were exclusive? And I noticed that this had been the case in the United States in, in some ways. And I, uh, when I turned to look at the United Kingdom, I saw similar patterns. And so I, I thought that there might be something there. And so that was really the motivation behind it, was trying to think through the question of democratization from a lens that did not simply take for granted that these were homogenous societies in which the major line of differentiation was sort of a classical class division. And one of the points that you make in the book is that when we think about Europe, we tend to imagine that that was a, um, that was a narrative about class and that there's something different in the United States about, about race, that ours, ours was not the masses against the classes, that there was something else going on. Um, I think it would be helpful at this point for listeners for us to just sort of uh, 
ground them in some of your vocabulary. So when you talk about democratization, you're, you're talking about it two different ways. You're suggesting it's a process of extending political rights, but you also want us to see it as a deliberate effort to change the composition and the character of this particular community. And, and you want to focus as, us on influence on the benefits and costs and, and, and this notion of civil prestige that um, it has to do with about uh, inclusion. So you're, you're saying to us, I think, that we shouldn't focus so much on this neutral set of procedures, like extending the voting rights, but, but these narrative claims about who constitutes and who represents any particular people. So you want us to understand 19th century uh, uh, US, UK, and France as a conflict over people making. And I was wondering if you could just uh, stretch that out for everybody <laughs> a little bit more as to, as to what it is you're getting at about the definition of the people, capital P. That's a great question. So I, I think you're absolutely right in how I was thinking about democratization. Um, I think that the standard way we think about it is kind of as an analytical concept. You either are a democracy or not, or you're becoming a democracy, more of a democracy or less of a democracy. And sort of there's this sliding scale of how inclusive are you, um, how much competition you allow, how free and fair the competition that you allow is. And I think that that's, uh, that's right as far as it goes. But what it misses, or at least what it missed for me, is that when we think about it in those terms, there's a teleological sort of assumption that gets built into it as though the process of democratization is the process of moving along that, moving that slider along, moving towards more inclusiveness. And I think when we're talking as analysts in some sense, we're probably, that's probably right. And we can say that this country is more or less democratic than this because of these different aspects. But understanding the politics of it uh, struck me as requiring a different lens and a different approach. And that was, we had to think of how democratization as a political process was in part a, con uh, a conflict over power. And that's sort of a standard assumption in a lot of the literature on democratization. But also because, um, because the, the groups competing for power are looking not simply for a one-time victory, but to establish themselves in some sense as more likely than not to be elected, more likely than not to be in, uh, in, in government, to really rest, to secure their power in a sense. We need to understand how they are trying to craft narratives of political community that a much, much more broader and much more amorphous set of constituencies and communities might adhere to. And that insofar as they can do so, if they can create a sense of a political community that is seen as valid and seen as valuable and seen as legitimate, that that will strengthen their own hand in any sort of political competitions and political contests that they might have. Doing so, however, can look very much, it can be an inclusive ideal, or it can be a very exclusionary ideal. And at least some element of exclusion is probably inherent to it, but how hard that exclusion is, how well-defined the other that is excluded is, those are all matters of politics. And I wanted to understand a little bit more about how that politics was formed. So thinking to, in, in, in these terms, thinking about democratization as this political process, I found couldn't simply happen at the, at the level of, well, how many, uh, how many new voters can you in, include with the expectation that those voters will vote for you? Or uh, how can you institutionalize competitive elections? But had to think through about how the people, the actual groups, the small number of groups and individuals involved in building these institutions could think through the process of how they would establish their own authority and ground their own authority in the aspirations and beliefs of a larger amorphous community. And structuring stories of peoplehood, I found to be a very uh, useful way of getting at that. Um, and this became more and more clear to me as I was doing some of the empirical research in which the language was so regularly and repeatedly about people and about peoplehood and who was in and who was out and what the proper legitimate basis for political authority and popular authority was. And on the one hand, we could think of those, that, those debates and that language as sort of epiphenomenal. Of course, they talk like that, but that's not really what's motivating them. And I think in some sense, that's probably true. That's not their motivation. But the very fact that they're talking in these terms, I think, reflected part of their broader political project.
And I love the part in the book where you talk about that sometimes we imagine narratives to just be cover-ups for a material uh, outcome that is sought. But but really what the I think the compelling argument you make that is that narratives are really about creating a durable source of public authority, about going going beyond that debate at the moment towards something that is going to be far longer lasting than winning a particular policy outcome. Exactly. Um, you use the word they, and <laughs> as you were describing this, and I think in the, the book really focuses on the role of elites. So could you flesh out just a little bit about the they? Who Who is narrating this Um uh, who is narrating the people? Uh, and I and I think that this leads to another question, which you could either answer together or apart, as to how you do your research. What kind of documents are you looking at? What kind of archives are you going into? So two parts. Who is the they who is creating the narrative and how do you discover it? Those are great questions. Um, the, the they for me of who was creating these narratives was, I guess, in some sense, you could say elites, but they're not sort of very well-known elites. Um, they are, right. and in, in some cases, it's really even tough to call them elites. It's not the people in any sort of amorphous sense. Uh, it's not sort of, it's something less than a social movement in a lot of cases. Um, it's a, networks of individuals and organized groups associated with them that are looking to gain and secure power in politics. Um, and these are, you know, this might be from the level of Thomas Jefferson or uh, um, uh, the Duke of Wellington, but it could go all the way down to sort of minor local officials who are trying to be elected to a state legislative office, right? So we, in, in general, I'm thinking of political actors as well as the associated interests and backers of those political actors. Uh, that is a lot of people, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, on the one hand, I mean that these are relatively small and coherent. They're able to communicate with each other. Uh, they look more like political parties in some cases than uh, others, but they're all coalitions of distinctly politically engaged individuals. Um, how this leads me to, to go about doing the research that I do was really to try and move away from a top-level focus on sort of a few major decision makers, although in some cases that was more important than, than, than elsewhere, um, and try and focus in much more on how uh, sort of the meso-level actors, uh, people who would actually on a day-to-day -day basis be providing the types of arguments about peoplehood that most voters uh, might be exposed to and might sort of engage with, the types of political actors who would give a speech in a legislature, in a state legislature, for example, or a state constitutional convention in the United States, uh, who were politically engaged, but you're probably never going to see this figure again. But they come in and they give a speech, and that speech replicates a narrative pattern that is being developed across the country throughout this coalition. And that strikes me as sort of a way in which popular authority is really being constructed uh, through these meso-level actors. Uh, it, it, there's a bit of a difference between the United States case and the French and English cases that both reflects... Uh, aspects of the research, but also, I think, just institutional differences. In the French and uh, UK case, I tried as much as possible to focus on the meso-level actors, but in part because uh, the po politics became so centralized in some of the institutional sites, the French National Assembly or the British Parliament, that a few individuals, much more, the type we would more commonly associate with being elites, political elites, came to stand out more there than they did in the United States. And I think that reflects largely the different institutional structures of these different countries. Uh, and, that, and you make that very clear throughout the book. Look, look, actually, probably now is the time for us to sort of move through the argument so the listeners get an idea of the, 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 the full story that you're telling. So, you know, on the one hand, you're focused on a particular case, which is that in 19th century America, the democratization backsliding isn't about falling into authoritarianism. It's about democratization itself. It's about, it's about reconfiguring the state to better re represent a particular definition of the people 
And you're trying to show how at the same time you could be abolishing property and taxpaying qualifications while curtailing voting rights for black male citizens. And I think your question is why? What, why does that happen? So um, let's talk a little bit about this pattern of disenfranchising democratization. Um, chapter two looks at this upsurge of democratization during the American Revolution. And it, and it, it, it finds that it's not connected to disenfranchising reforms. Can you talk just a little bit about what the American Revolution period looks like so that we kind of understand the lead up to the 19th century? Absolutely. Uh, so, you, so you're absolutely right that the focus, uh, I, where I start is with this pattern, which I think you put beautifully of backsliding in the United States is not about a backsliding into authoritarianism, but is integral to the dem- dem- democratizing process. Uh, and where I start off with, and what su- surprised me in the research process was that I expected this to be a sort of persistent theme across early American history. And what surprised me was that in the early revolution, and even in the early years of the early republic, that pattern didn't really exist. The pattern of uh, property or taxpaying qualifications being removed and a new racial qualification being imposed alongside it, or even as a replacement for it. What also surprised me was that there was no, at least in the revolutionary and early republic period, there was no explicit joining of these two things. There were very, very few people who were going around saying, this is a white man's republic. White men ought to have the right to vote on the basis of their whiteness. Um, that pattern comes in and comes in with, with a vengeance very much in the later antebellum period. But in the early, in the revolution, in early republic, it wasn't that, that present. And then the types of people who were supporting different positions. By the 1850s, if you were against taxpaying qualifications, it, you were, there was a very, very good likelihood that you were also strongly opposed to African-American men being able to vote. In the revolution, there wasn't much evidence of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. During the early republic, there wasn't much evidence of that. And so what happens in the revolution, it seems, is uh, there's a major upsurge of popular politics. This popular politics was not sort of a revolution at home, the way it's often been presented, but it did involve an increased number of people demanding new rights. And it involved a number of political actors who would otherwise already had political rights, trying to mobilize those who didn't in defense of their demands. And one of the legacies, so what you see in the revolution is a lot of states are removing property qualifications or lowering property qualifications, or removing taxpaying qualifications for voting rights or lowering these considerably. And not many states at all imposing new racial qualifications. In fact, some states went much further. New Jersey abolished, uh, and it turns out deliberately, the re- restriction on the restriction that voting be limited to men. So in New Jersey from 1776 until 1807, women who were legally independent could vote. African-American women who were legally independent could and did vote in New Jersey. And there's good evidence to think that uh, this was deliberate, or at the very least it was understood as something that was going to happen. And part of the evidence for that was that when a proposals to disenfranchise uh, African-American men in most states and then women and African-American women in New Jersey, when those proposals were being made, they got a lot of pushback. And they were, in fact, oftentimes uh, rejected initially. And so it surprised me just how, how open the politics were. It was very likely, and by all accounts, a deeply racist society. It was a society that in which slavery was already very, very prevalent and had been for a long time, although varyingly so, and a lot of states were moving to abolish slavery. But it was a society in which there was an openness, and I don't want to sort of exaggerate the degree of openness, but there wasn't the same rigidity of exclusion on racial lines, mm-hmm. at least amongst those who were putatively free. Very quickly, however, that transforms, and by the 1820s, after the 1820s, you see a very persistent pattern of opposition to African-American uh, voting rights being made, being most strongly insisted upon by those who were most strongly insisted upon democracy in, in, in how they termed it. And you started to see ideological accounts of explicit philosophical and principled accounts saying that we deserve the right to vote on the basis of whiteness alone. 
In the case of New Jersey, and New Jersey is 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 such a um, it's such an interesting focus because of how women are treated, and this is the hundredth anniversary of women's suffrage. So, mm-hmm. so first to clarify, voting in New Jersey was for for independent women, so coverture, which yeah. would have had married women not having certain voting rights, um, that's still in place. What, what what do you account for the changes that come in the early republic with uh, women's voting in New Jersey um, and the and the uptick in the power of coverture um, and the, this common law idea that men cover their wives um, in terms of the law, in terms of control of their wages and property? So... New Jersey, even at the time, was seen at the time was seen as very sort of very much an outlier and quite sort of radical in that regard. It was also kind of sort of seen in many places, at least by many people in New Jersey, as kind of a uh, not just sort of an outlier, but also kind of um, not to be taken too seriously. So New Jersey had New Jersey was regularly sort of remarked upon as being a state in which anybody could vote. Um, and even though there was a property qualifications, it was it was fairly easy to get around that so that anybody did vote. Uh, and that's well, that's not uh, actually true that anybody did vote or could vote. An extraordinary number of people could. It was, however, at the same time, it was seen as an outlier. It was not seen as some fundamental threat to uh, human society or human uh, or American organization. It was seen as more of a quirk than anything, of an oddity. Um, the and this is not to say that sort of this was this was again for uh, legally independent women, which meant unmarried or widows uh, of legal age. And so there was a small number of women who could and did vote, uh, but it, but it was seen as a quirk rather than some fundamental break with uh, patriarchal assumptions. Much later, by the time of the eighteen forties, eighteen fifties, it would be seen the very idea would be seen as a major break, a real threat to uh, the foundations of society and the sort of standard patriarchal assumptions. How that process developed, however, that is a much more sort of complicated story. Um, But I do think it involves aspects of different political coalitions seeing and constructing the male figure and the white male figure eventually as the rights-bearing citizen entitled to part, participating in the, in the public sphere, that as that image crystallized, the boundaries excluding women became much more severe. You contrast this uh, time during the American Revolution in which you don't see um, democratization as having this uh, backsliding which by the way, I'm taking your language. So that was definitely not mine. I took, took that from your book. Uh, and you say during the Jeffersonian era in the early Republic, that's when we start to see black citizenship as central to defining a white man's Republic. So can you talk a little bit about how the divisions within the Jeffersonian coalition lead to these two different narratives or competing narratives about whiteness and um, whiteness and or maleness? Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the one of the most interesting things about the Jeffersonian coalition is that it is really a truly bisectional party. Uh, and it's following sort of the encouragement of the Constitution to create bisectional parties. And so it is bringing together Republicans from the North and Republicans from the South. And Republicans in these different regions had a very different orientation towards questions of uh, what would become questions of race, as well as questions of of bondage. Uh, Southern Republicans were largely comfortable with it, or if they were uncomfortable with it, they were not so uncomfortable about it to do anything about it. And in fact, were broadly sort of seeking to expand it during this period. Northern Republicans were a more of a mixed bag. They were generally opposed to slavery. They frequently expressed, uh, they, they quite frequently and surprisingly, in, in my perspective, they, from a, in a surprising frequency, they expressed open opposition to any type of racial distinction as being illiberal or unchristian. 
um, and certainly mm-hmm. unrepublican, that to draw these distinctions was unrepublican. They were, however, not nearly as invested in this as Southern Republicans were. And Southern Republicans and Southern Federalists were deeply invested in a racial ordering to society. And this became more and more important for them as uh, certain developments, both in the United States and abroad, seemed to them to threaten and to raise the possibility of threats to um, to the enslavement system of the South. Uh, not the least of the threats being the gradual abolition of the enslavement system throughout the North. But probably the most important, um, probably the most important instigator for this was the Haitian Revolution. And the Haitian Revolution is the impact of the Haitian Revolution on American society is enormous and it's very complex, I expect. But one of the ways that I find that it influenced things was to really uh, become a touchstone for political for political arguments about why African Americans, even free African Americans, needed to be denied political rights. And a version of the Haitian Revolution was told in which uh, France, that effectively has no real foundation, in fact, but it was the story that was repeated very, very broadly. And on, you would see it sort of constantly whenever Haiti was invoked, which was quite often. And the argument was that revolutionary France had indiscriminately provided political rights to uh, free persons of color. In doing so, they had encouraged free persons of color to enter politics, and they had become to fight and to co- uh, come into competition with the dominant white class. In this competition between the two, they increasingly the, the free men of color increasingly turned towards uh, the enslaved or the enslaved themselves saw the divisions within this broad and conflictual ruling class, saw the divisions there, and used the opportunity to generate an insurrection. The very ideas of sort of uh, revolutionary Republican equality that the United States had initially been trumpeting and which revolutionary France began to trumpet more, uh, more aggressively came to be seen, especially in the United States South, but also amongst conservatives everywhere, as a major threat both to the new national, uh, to the new nation, but also to the slaveholding societies and to the structures of enslavement in that region. And by the 1800s, early 1800s, by around 1805 and afterwards, you start seeing Southern Republicans in Congress very adamantly and aggressively opposing any notion that free African-American men could be citizens. They were deeply opposed to it. And Northern Republicans sort of were unclear. They were they would often sort of make a notion that would, uh, in some sense, either recognize or even possibly uh, confirm African American, free African American citizenship. And they would be hit with this barrage of attacks and criticisms from the South. And they would back away, but they would express their sort of opposition and surprise at the level of hostility. Mm-hmm. And this all sort of blows up in the Missouri crisis, and especially the second Missouri crisis. The first Missouri crisis is whether or not Missouri will enter the United enter uh, the Union as a slaveholding state. The second Missouri crisis comes when the Missouri Constitutional Convention, set up to draft a founding document for Missouri, includes a provision stating that free African Americans will not be allowed into the state. And this becomes a huge controversy that goes on for months. And there's an enormous amount of opposition in the North to allowing this into the Constitution. Now, uh, Ohio had already passed legislation like this, as a few other states had, but it became a real crystallizing moment for a lot of Republicans in the North that not only was slavery being expanded, but the definition of citizenship was going to be constructed in such a way that it excluded uh, free persons of color. And how does that then lead us into the the antebellum moment of of, uh, of disenfranchising um, that the the book is in a sense hinges on or is focused on as the as the sort of the beginning example that opens this question? So. I take Missouri as sort of both uh, a culmination and, and as, a, as a symptom of the problem. And the Missouri, the fight over the Missouri crisis, and the symptom of the problem is this gap between what Northern Republicans 
believed was important and what Southern Republicans believed was important. Southern Republicans had come to believe that the denial of citizenship for free African-Americans and absolutely the denial of any political rights for free African-Americans was absolutely essential. And that it was sort of, it had become for them in many ways equivalent to the constitutional bargaining. And so you would start seeing regular invocations of to allow black suffrage in New York, to allow African-American men to vote in Pennsylvania would be a violation of the constitution, which is uh, pretty astounding given that there's nothing in the constitution even remotely indicative of that. But it was about the compromise that had gone into the constitution would be violated if this were to allow to, to persist and if it became uh, a recognized feature of American politics, American political life. The resolution to this was to try and find a new way that the popular authority and the political authority of the Republicans could be grounded, one that would sort of simultaneously be democratizing and yet sufficiently exclusionary so as to not worry the South. And it was only gradually through the 1820s and 1830s that they really cohered around the language of the white man's republic, that you were entitled to the right of suffrage, you were entitled to all the rights of the citizen, not on the basis of property, not on the basis of tax paying, but on the basis of being a white male alone, and that that was enough. And that this seemed to resolve for Northern Republicans and for Southern Republicans the problem. Southern Republicans were deeply invested in making sure African-Americans were not citizens, Northern Republicans had committed themselves to these Republican principles and were having a hard time explaining why they should not apply to free African-American men. But a growing number of them found, well, this works for me. And that's a good enough explanation for me. And that's a good enough explanation for my constituents. And they would diffuse and disseminate that language so that the script of the white man's republic became extraordinarily common. And you start finding it everywhere when you're looking around sort of the 1830s through 1860s in a way that it's almost, is very, very rarely present before that. In the book, you then sort of turn us to think about the United Kingdom and France and similar impulses there. I, I thought the chapter on the overthrow uh, of political community narrated as like a Protestant constitutionalism uh, was fascinating. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how in the United Kingdom, we see the enfranchising of middle-class whites men while disenfranchising Irish farmers and other parts of the, uh, of the working class. Yeah. So the, the initial sort of grounding for me and uh, the argument had been in the United States. And then I wanted to see whether, to what extent it applied elsewhere. As I indicated earlier, I had a I knew that there were some disenfranchising processes in other countries, and I wanted to see how integral these were to uh, the process of democratization elsewhere. And again, I found that one of the key parts of the story was understanding how a particular narrative and a particular institutionalization of a vision of political community was either dismantled or replaced by a democratizing coalition that had a very different vision of of community and a very different uh, vision for how it could ground its own political authority. And this came in two sort of uh, ways. One was the disenfranchisement of the Irish Catholic 40 shillings freeholders uh, in 1829 as sort of a trade, effectively. Basically, uh, the Irish are to get Catholic emancipation so that Catholics will be entitled to serve in Parliament. Um, as well as entitled to serve in a variety of other offices, at the cost of the disenfranchisement of the large majority of Irish Catholic voters, who for the most part had been uh, under the thumb or controlled by their landlords, their Anglo-Irish landlords, um, their Anglo-Irish Protestant landlords, but who, starting in the 1820s, had started to show real possibility for political independence and had started voting for uh, Irish candidates who were not associated with the Anglo-Irish uh, ascendancy. So that was one part of the trade. Was that, and, that, and that was very much a trade. It was a trade of disenfranchising the 40-shilling Catholic freeholders in exchange for Catholic emancipation. And the existing vision of political community, the Protestant constitution, backed by the sort of nascent Tory party, 
they were really committed to sustaining the Protestant constitution. And so Catholic emancipation for them was a major blow uh, and it deeply divided uh, the party for a while. And David, when you talk about a trade, is this something that is explicitly conscious or is this something that evolves and happens? Is there some sort of you know, meeting in which people lay out how this will happen or, you know, in other words, how much of this is planned, how much of this is, is, um, is really explicitly conscious? So this was actually, I think, one of the most uh, deliberate and uh, deliberate and well thought out part trades in the entire book. And this was very much a trade that, uh, or at least for most, for many of the actors, it was a trade. The, the Tories and the Anglo-Irish landlords had relied heavily on the voting power of the 40 shilling freeholders. As they saw that they were going to lose these, they wanted to make sure it, that they were losing influence with them. They wanted to make sure that that power can never be used against them, that electoral strength can never be used against them. So they demanded that. The concession that they were willing to give, ultimately at the threat of civil war, was Catholic emancipation. And so this, there was a clear design starting in 1825 or so, uh, various influential figures started arguing that this is what we should do. We should allow Catholic emancipation in exchange for removing all the Irish Catholic voters. For a subset, and I think a pretty large and increasingly important subset of those who were involved in the politics at the time, this became, this was not a trade. This was actually a good thing altogether. And this group who would sort of form the nascent liberal coalition in parliament uh, they saw they saw the Irish uh, voters, the Irish 40 shilling freehold voters, as dependent, under the thumb, and ultimately not fit repositories of political rights. They thought that they were too superstitious, too easily controlled, and we sh- they should be removed from politics so that a new middle class that wasn't under the, the thumb of landlords, uh, mm-hmm. that a new middle class could be empowered. This empowerment should not be on religious lines for these liberals, but they wanted it to be very distinctly on class lines. And and how do you see the comparison between this case in which it's about religion, but but also about culture in terms of how the Irish Catholics are understood and race in the United States? Do you see them as the same? Do you see them as different? Is there some sort of overlap I think that there's a lot of overlap, uh, although uh, the way I structured the case studies was in part more of exploratory. I didn't want to foreclose the possibility that these could be seen in some sense equivalent as equivalent, although I didn't want to insist that they were perfectly equivalent. And I don't think that there's a single common pattern. I think politics was much too contingent and contextual for that. Uh, I do think that it's difficult for us to, especially for uh, those of us living in the United States, to appreciate just how central the religious distinction uh, and the national distinction against the Irish was in the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom was only at this point, by the period that my uh, the book picks up, was only about 20, 25 years old and had been created for the purpose of suppressing the uh, suppressing Ireland and ensuring the continued ascendancy of Protestantism. The threat of Catholicism, uh, one of the great uh, one of the great themes of British historiography around this period was that the English nation and British nation was being forged in juxtaposition to Catholicism. Right. Like the Catholic power was the great threat, the great other. And so on the one hand, we can think of uh, race and religious and religion as distinct lines of differentiation, although what race is uh, in this period is still sort of very incohate. It's being formed gradually, um, whereas religion has a more firm grounding, at least in uh, public understandings. So we can think of them as different in a variety of ways. What, ma- what they hold together, or sort of the, uh, what's a useful point of comparison between them is that they are both seen, and they come to both be seen in the United States and the United Kingdom as the defining line of differentiation. It becomes the white man's republic, and it becomes, or it had been in the United Kingdom, the Protestant constitution. Mm-hmm. And so there's absolutely likely to be differences in the ways in which these operate at either a 
uh, mass level or the elite level, but in terms of drawing lines of who is in and who is out or what constitutes a political community, I found that there was more points of connection and complementarity and uh, comparability than differences. Uh, before we move on to the connection between this construction of political narratives and who is the people and contemporary politics, which I think is one of the interesting parts about the book. Is there anything you want to say about the 1870s uh, example in France that's useful to the discussion? Absolutely. So I guess the French case, uh, I, I, I initially saw it in some sense as, or one of the ways I was conceptualizing it while I was researching it was as potentially the dog that didn't bark. Um, that this was a case in which it seemed, at least initially to me, as an unadulterated expansion, right? That it was, um, it's the 1870s continued and secured a universal suffrage that had been won initially in the 1848 revolution and then sustained, although deprived of any real force throughout the Napoleonic, second Napoleonic regime. But as I increasingly uh, was looking at the French case, I saw a lot of, uh, compatibilities and complements with the other two. And in France, what you saw was a real strong and persistent effort to disenfranchise uh, basically working class voters. Um, and this was a, a strong effort to do so. Mm. However, the coalition that was trying to do so couldn't agree. You had this royalist coalition, a broad royalist co coalition, that was briefly, after the 1870 revolution, was briefly in power. And they were trying to roll back the Republic and get rid of the Republic that had been just inaugurated. But the different wings of this coalition could never work out a common basis for what the franchise should be because it cannot work out a common basis for what the political vision of the community should be. And the most sort of stark example of this would be the most far right of the royalists had, for a variety of reasons, come to believe should act that the uh, the vision of political community that they had rested on this small peasant farmer who would be able to vote for all of his children. And so mm -hmm. they were insistent on, they wanted to expand the election. They wanted virtual votes for women such that, uh, and some even wanted uh, votes for women, that they wanted to empower effectively the rural countryside. Whereas the other part of the Royalist coalition was very much a, hope bourgeoisie, right? It was much more urban, much more commercial, and they could never quite agree. And the idea of enfranchising millions of, uh, or sustaining and even empowering further millions of, of uh, agricultural workers was not at all appealing to them. And so they couldn't work out a vision that would unite these two, uh, these, these two different incentives of who to include and who to exclude. The Republicans who ultimately emerged triumphant, they too, they were sort of, they became committed to the principle of universal suffrage, but they became more and more convinced that it must be, that the restriction against it being applied, uh, that the restriction they made it just for men had to be sustained. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Don Teal's, uh, Don Teal's Forging the Franchise. In Don Teal looks at the politics of uh, the French Third Republic around women's suffrage and finds a similar thing that I do, although in much greater detail, that for the third, for Republicans in the Third Republic who were committed rhetorically to universal suffrage, they could not allow and they could not break from the adamant insistence that it be for men only, because mm -hmm. to do so in their mind would threaten the regime, because it would threaten the return of the Catholic royalists, and they were it's, absolutely opposed to that. That's so interesting because if if you think about the three examples and the way that you talk about them, the the notion of othering is essential. So in the American case, it becomes about race. In the English case, uh, it becomes about religion as the source of othering. And it's odd in the French case of how you can other the working class or other gender and make make that the other. It's it's extraordinary. In the other two cases, it's almost as if women are assumed to be out, and so it's not even in contention. Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating. No, I agree. Uh, they also France is also odd because the Republicans are in a way othering political Catholics, which and it's a 
extremely Catholic country. And there's this great line um, by one of the early Republicans uh, when we, in which he is articulating the grounds upon which public, the, the French Republican community needs to be differentiated. And he says, clericalism, that's the enemy. The clerics are the mm-hmm. enemy, which is astounding. Well, as I read throughout through the book, and you know, you're you're back in time, you're in these different places, but for me, there was just a common theme throughout, and and you signaled it in the introduction. So you were helping me as the reader of the impact of everything that you're saying on contemporary politics, particularly in the United States. So when we talk about undermining democratic institutions here, you know, suppressing voting, things like that, um, you seem to be suggesting that what we really should be attending to is is the power of denying status and the power of sort of uh, constructing a certain kind of class of Americans uh, who is the people, uh, you know, make America great again as part of a narrative of a white man's republic and trying to redefine the people to be narrower. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on how it is you trace this an, an original uh, disenfranchisement in the United States to 1960s civil rights and then contemporary politics today? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, one of the, so, uh, you know, historically minded political scientists and historians, they can be oftentimes uh, um, very focused in on sort of the particularities of, of a given period or the particularities of a particular place. And so on the one hand, the content of America's racial hierarchy and the, con- the particular forms which has been ideologically defended, the particular forms which it's been institutionalized, these have transformed and gone back and forth in uh, across American history. And so there's no easy comparison to do between 1800s uh, and 2015. Um, that said, what I do think is common across these different eras, despite the unfolding and changes in the development of racial ideology, racial hierarchy, is the connection between political efforts to gain power and the need to articulate these efforts in a way that pr- provides constituents, some constituents, a constituency that will provide you with a sufficient uh, political grounding that can keep you in power, that you provide these constituents with the sense that they're part of something meaningful. And that part of something meaningful can it can look very egalitarian. It can look, look very enlightening. It can look very sort of universalistic. It can also look very, very exclusionary and narrow that you are better only because you're better than the next person over. Um, and how these develop, right, we need to think of this as a political story rather than sort of implanting it as some generic aspect of American culture or English culture or French culture, but rather what is the politics of a particular time is able to draw on the various resources, the various repertoires of differentiation, various repertoires of solidarity to construct a vision of political community that simultaneously is coherent. I mean, the white man's republic was a very coherent uh, vision and provide the constituents who it's being sold to with a sense of value and purpose. Yeah. And thinking about that politically. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, no. I apologize for interrupting you. You use a term in the book that just resonated with me and stuck with me for days, which is hierarchy of worth. And and as I hear contemporary political narratives today, I think that helps explain them. They they are not simply offering an alternative image of community. They're 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 assuming that 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 community represents a different a different hierarchy of worth to different citizens and, and, and who the state represents will change based on who gets included in that, in that community. Absolutely. I mean, this is the, the hierarchy of worth is embedded every time anybody says real Americans, it is, uh, it is a part of the project. Anytime somebody tries to sort of, you know, draw differentiation between, um, 
this class and that class of Americans such that immigrants who have been here, who live here, are parts of a community, are seen as and somehow not only not part of that community, but as a threat to that community. Right. This hierarchy of worth, I think a hierarchy, drawing hierarchies of worth is in, is in some sense sort of an inherent part of politics. Um, but there are some forms that can be very, very extreme, hard, exclusionary, and repressive, and other forms that are the basis of imagined solidarities or future solidarities and future egalitarian possibilities of saying that this group, you are worthy, your lives matter, you should be listened to, that that involves a type of hierarchy of worth that can be much more expansive than restrictive. And America goes back and forth. All countries have sort of different aspects of potential for one or the other. Because it's not rooted in the culture so much as in the politics of a particular society. So, David, tell me what's your next project? What are you? What have you been working on since this book came out? So, I, I've been working on a few things. Um, sort of around the time that this book came out, another book came out uh, called Southern Nation that was co-authored with Ira Katz Nelson and John Lipinski, and so that developed uh, certain aspects of looking at how. Congress became a site for the sustaining and implementation of forms of white supremacist institutions and policies across the country uh, in the post-Reconstruction era. And so I've continued working uh, in that vein. I'm also working on a set of projects on the formation of African-American political activism around civil rights, as well as labor issues and other issues from the post-Reconstruction to the New Deal period, um, as as well as other projects relating to how industrial democracy as its own vision of democratic achievement and democratic worth came to be understood in the United States. But those are sort of three big projects that I'm currently engaged with. Well, when any or all of them become books, please come back to New Books in Political Science and we'll chat about it again. Um, uh, David Bateman's Disenfranchising Democracy, Constructing the Electorate in the United States, the United Kingdom, and France is available from Cambridge University Press. You can buy it on the Cambridge University Press website, on Indie Books, on Bookshop, or on the usual Amazon and Barnes & Noble. We also hope that um, at this time you'll You'll think about the um, bookstores, Seminary Co-op in Chicago, the many independent bookstores that rely on people buying from them and uh, reach out. Some of them have many nice deals about about, um, getting books to you right now. So thanks so much, David. Um, Good luck with the next projects. Thank you so much, Susan. I really appreciate being on.